Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. In 18th century France, the most read book after the Bible was a book on political philosophy, and it was written by a Roman Catholic archbishop named Francois Fenelon. But you've probably never heard his name before. Unfortunately, only a small number of his works have been translated into English. Francois Fenelon was an important voice in France. During the Enlightenment, he fought for the reform of France's political and economic institutions. His work is a critical resource for people who are interested in economics, philosophy, and even religion. Today on the podcast, Ryan Patrick Hanley joins the show to share why he believes Fenelon's work is important for us today. Ryan Hanley is a professor at Boston College and the author of a new book titled The Political Philosophy of Fenelon. This book is also a companion to a volume of his English translation of Fenelon's moral and political writings. There's a lot of interesting history packed into this episode, so if you want to learn more about Fenelon and if you want to buy the new book, I've linked the resources for you in the show notes posted at blog.acton.org. This is Jordan Baller, a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute, and it's my pleasure to have Ryan Patrick Hanley as a guest on Acton Line. Ryan Patrick Hanley is professor of political science at Boston College. Prior to joining the faculty there, he was the Mellon Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Marquette University, and he's held visiting appointments or fellowships at Yale, Harvard, and the University of Chicago. Dr. Hanley is a specialist on the political philosophy of the Enlightenment period. He's the author of Adam Smith and the Character of Virtue, Loves Enlightenment, Rethinking Charity and Modernity, and Our Great Purpose, Adam Smith on Living a Better Life, which is an excellent book. Today, we're going to be speaking mostly about uh, more recent projects, the things that he's been working on most recently, uh, the 17th and early 18th century Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher Francois Fenelon. Uh, Dr. Hanley is the author of a volume on Fenelon, The Political Philosophy of Fenelon, and a, which serves as a kind of a companion to an edited primary source collection called Fenelon, Moral and Political Writings. Ryan, thanks for joining us here on Acton Line. Thanks for having me, Jordan. It's really a pleasure to be chatting with you today. Yeah, so as I said, we're going we're gonna to talk mostly about um, Fenelon, which is what you've been working on a lot lately, and those are the two newest volumes that you've got out. Um, I probably won't be able to resist asking you a little bit about Adam Smith, but maybe there will even be a segue there. I don't know. We'll see how the conversation goes. Um, I think in your introduction to Fenelon, who I must admit, even as an early modernist, I was not really that familiar with, you say he's one of the most neglected major thinkers of this era. Can you can you just give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch biographically about Fenelon? Um, you know, what, what, what should we know about him? Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, Jordan, I have to say the way you just presented your own background, um, it sort of validates the reasons why I, <laughs> I wrote the book. Um, in many ways, it is a scholarly book, and it is meant in many ways for scholars, but it is designed to bring 
what I think to be just a remarkably underappreciated figure back into the contemporary conversation, and especially for scholars of the early modern period, um, many of whom know Fenelon perhaps by name, but who haven't engaged him directly to really give an opportunity to, uh, to resuscitate um, just a remarkably important, interesting, and terribly influential figure. And so um, you asked about Fenelon's life uh, specifically. So um, just in a nutshell, so Fenelon is, um, uh, so he lived and wrote uh, in the age of Louis XIV, so the latter part of the 18th or 17th century, and his death, in fact, coincided with uh, Louis XIV's death in 1715. And maybe the easiest way to put it is that his life and writings and Louis XIV's life were in many ways intertwined. Um, Fenelon had a number of remarkable accomplishments as an intellectual, but their lives came together most clearly, his and Louis XIV's, when he was invited to uh, become um, one of the court tutors to the uh, grandchildren, the, uh, the enfants de France, uh, the presumptive heirs to the throne uh, of Louis XIV. And so Fenelon was sort of a, was a Versailles insider for quite a while. And uh, in the course of his uh, work at Versailles, one of the things he was very conscious to do was to try to educate the future monarch to be, uh, to be in many ways an anti-Louis the 14th. Hmm. Fenelon, a good, principled, decent man, was appalled by the uh, grandeur, uh, the lavishness, the luxury, the pomp of the court of life at Versailles, and he believed that um, this was really harming the French people as a whole and the nation. So he wrote this um, really remarkable work, and this is what both uh, in terms of his contemporary political influence gave him his, um, his uh, left the mark, as well as his future legacy. And the work was originally written specifically for his, uh, the, the young boy he was uh, tutoring. And he wrote this book called Telemachus, and, or The Adventures of Telemachus. And in it, Fenelon tells the story of uh, the adventures of young Prince Telemachus, uh, the son of Odysseus, back, going back to Homer, and his search uh, for his father around the Mediterranean, picking up one of the great um, uh, narratives of Homer. But what Fenelon uses that to do was to um, teach Telemachus, who was the prince somewhat in disguise, about the virtues of genuine rulership, of genuine statesmanship, and what it meant to be a ruler for the people rather than for oneself. I mention that because it both introduces the substance of the work, but also it helps tell the story of Fenelon's biography. This book that Fenelon wrote in the 1690s for the audience of one, it somehow got leaked, and there's a court intrigue story that we don't know all the details of, but it seems like uh, uh, one of the servants stole the manuscript, delivered it to the publisher, and in 1699 it's published and becomes a bestseller for ages to come. And in fact, this is the work he owes his reputation to, and throughout the 18th century, it's read by anybody, uh, everybody that's anybody, and it becomes uh, quite literally the best-selling work in all of 18th century France after the Bible. 
Um, we could talk more about uh, what that did to Fenelon's life uh, and uh, the political ideas it contained, but I think it's really in terms of his political influence that uh, major work of 1699 that defines who he is. Now, we also do have to say more about his uh, legacy as an archbishop, his profoundly important spiritual writings, as well as his many writings on other subjects beyond uh, just simply politics and economics um, that also are part of his living legacy. But I think it's important to start here, indeed, with the uh, political work that was his masterpiece and served really as the foundation for his legacy for uh, hundreds of years to come. So you, you talked about um, the importance of education for Fenelon. Could you say a little bit more about what the challenge challenges were in his own day about educating for elites? You talked about the, the, the goal being genuine leadership or true leadership for uh, of service of the people and not for oneself. What were some of those challenges politically, socioeconomically that, that Fenelon was faced with? Um, and then maybe say something about how different it is today, say in the modern West or in the United States uh, in a democratic society. Yeah, it's a great point of departure because um, Fenelon himself was a really important educational theorist. Um, you know, two of his earliest posts, so I mentioned that he was uh, a court tutor, but the way he came to that court tutorship was through earlier posts that he held as an educator. One was, uh, right after he was ordained, he took over um, what's called Nouvelle Catholique. The, um, it was a school for Protestant girls converting to Catholicism in Paris. And he was very successful there, and he ended up writing a treatise on the education of uh, girls, which was, for its time, remarkably progressive, and still although it doesn't seem as progressive as other contemporary works that we know today, still is a remarkably insightful work about uh, not just uh, female education, but also education more generally. Uh, on the heels of that, he then had a second educational position. Louis XIV, of course, famously revoked the Edict of Nantes, guaranteeing um, freedom of worship to French Protestants in uh, 1685. And by the end of 1685, Fenelon, because he was seen as such a wonderful educator, was sent to um, one of the great Protestant strongholds in southern France, where he uh, was charged with the very delicate job of converting in the wake of the revocation of the edict. And there, too, Fenelon displayed a remarkable degree of um, sensitivity to the needs and concerns of those who may, in some cases, be under some duress from the conversion, forced conversion. Um, but he carried those skills further into his education of the prince. So one of the things that's really important is Fenelon's method. He was deeply, I used the word sympathetic before, he's always concerned about the needs and the position of the student as they stand and meeting that student on their level. And we see that method being practiced throughout his different educational endeavors. But it's also really the substance of his education that's so important and that deserves a hearing today. Um, Fenelon, as I was mentioned before, of course, he's writing for the heir to Louis XIV. He's writing in the midst of um, one of the most remarkable transformations of the French monarchy, the emergence of 
an absolutism that is justified by recourse to principles of divine right. And while Fenelon himself did not explicitly question divine right, he did question the legitimacy of certain interpretations of absolutism that he saw Louis XIV uh, uh, practicing. And in short, what worried him the most was the tremendous, and I'll use a contemporary word, narcissism of Louis XIV. The idea, I mean, many people know the perhaps apocryphal line from Louis XIV, uh, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. This idea that Louis XIV believed that he himself was the embodiment and representative of the state, and by building up his own pomp and grandeur, he could bring great glory to the state. Fenelon found this deeply disturbing and sought to recover an appreciation even from the king of certain what we would think of as perhaps more Republican and in many ways Christian virtues, not least of which is humility, but especially and perhaps most importantly, the idea of love. And Fenelon was insistent at the heart of his education is the idea that the self-love that drove Louis and his episodes of vanity and self-aggrandizement, that that self-love needed to be, um, shall we say, educated, elevated, moderated, mollified into a form in which we could see coming forth a greater love of others and not simply a love of self. And it's perhaps that idea more than any others, the perniciousness of egoism and self-love that unites Fenelon's different projects, both as an educator, but also as a writer on spiritual questions as well. I want to come back to that, uh, this idea of pure love and its relationship to self-love in Fenelon's thought. Um, and it's really intriguing to think of that background as related to his understanding of self-love manifested in somebody like Louis XIV. Um, but before we do that, you, you mentioned some really, I think, important contexts for Fenelon's work um, among the Huguenots. Uh, one of the things that struck me looking through the primary sources were, was um, his definition of the spiritual power and how that relates to the temporal power, uh, especially as it was contained in the tables. And maybe you could say a little bit about the genre of this work. Um, Here's the, I'm just going to read the definition um, of spiritual power that, that's contained there, which was surprising to me. Non-coercive authority in order to, one, teach the faith, administer the sacraments, and three, enable practice of the evangelical virtues by persuasion for eternal salvation. So you can see a lot of interesting connections there already with ideas of moral formation, uh, persuasion as opposed to coercion related to to, to the educational program that he was engaged in. A remarkable similarity there, I think, between the the Reformed and Huguenot definitions of the marks of the church related to proclamation, administering of sacraments and church discipline, mirrored in the purpose of the spiritual power, uh, according to Fenelon, to teach the faith, faith, administer the sacraments, and enable the practice of these evangelical virtues, which you've already alluded to there. Could you say a little bit... Um, about Fenelon's vision of the relationship between church and state, um, religion and civil society and government? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to, because I think this is a really fascinating side of um, Fenelon's um, vision, and it brings together both his vocation as archbishop uh, as well as his interest in political reform. 
And so Fenelon in, um, Jordan, you alluded to one of those documents that I translated, which was these remarkable tables or these plans of government. Um, in, six, in 1711, Fenelon got together with some of his friends who were fellow aristocratic reformers, and they drew up essentially a blueprint for what the government of France might look like if Fenelon's student ascended to the throne. By this point in time, Louis XIV is a very old man, and now Fenelon's student is the direct heir to the throne. His father, the Grand Dauphin, had just passed away. And so now it looks like this is the chance to put together their um, political reform. So that document that you were quoting from uh, is precisely this remarkable several-page blueprint going through all the different categories of institutional reform, with a page on the nobility, a page on the economy, a page on the army, uh, and uh, also a uh, couple of pages on the church. And so that's the immediate context of what you were just quoting. More broadly, though, Fenelon is writing at a time, of course, of great struggle, much of which comes from um, Louis XIV and his own penchants to absolutism. Um, and this involves the relationship of the French state uh, and the place of the church within the French state. There is a debate that um, students of the period will know well that uh, has to do with the relative place of papal authority and monarchical authority in France, uh, and a, a debate that um, Fenelon's intervening in between the Ultramontanes, who are looking to supreme power of the uh, Pope, and uh, the... Um, the Gallicans, who are within France, uh, insisting on greater autonomy for the church. And the question of where the French church stands, not just vis-a-vis -vis the Pope, but domestically then, is the one that Fenelon is really interested in and commenting on. And here he makes an argument that I find really fascinating. And I find it fascinating from the perspective, indeed, of someone that lives in 21st century America and is interested in debates over liberalism. Fenelon puts forth an argument for separation of church and state, but it's not simply the argument that's come to be familiar to us as 21st century Americans. Uh, and it's especially important to emphasize this because Fenelon is writing, and I think these parallels are so fascinating, at the very same time as Locke, of course, in the 1690s. And um, at the same time that Locke is refuting Filmer's claims to absolute, uh, uh, absolutism based on divine right, Fenelon is challenging in France Bousset's, his mentors, uh, some of his claims about the limits and extent of, uh, of authority uh, 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 driven from divine right. So I want to point out those parallels to the Lockean concerns, even as Fenelon himself is developing this argument that there should be a line of demarcation that separates spiritual authority and state authority. And within its sphere, the state, in terms of its limited goals, has supreme authority. But when it comes to the questions of, as Fenelon said, even in those lines that you were recounting, the goods that have to do with, uh, uh, with salvation, the church itself should have supreme and independent authority uh, to, make, uh, uh, to make decisions on, in that front. And that, um, uh, that creates certain challenges and obligations for rulers, uh, as well as for church officials within that context. And clearly, 
Fenelon is interested in pushing back against sympathizers of an expansive state power within religious concerns uh, and wishes to uh, draw some very clear lines mitigating some of that authority. Can you say a little bit about his conception of the the magistrate or the the king? Um, in much of what I was reading, he does he does use the imagery of of a great father, you know, to describe the king, um, which would be another interesting contrast, perhaps, with what Locke is doing in his re- rejoinder to Filmer's conception of a kind of more classical understanding of the relationship between the king and his subjects. Um, it does seem that there's these interesting parallels, and yet there's a difference um, in terms of Fenelon's affirmation of certain a, a certain conception of 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 the king, uh, in contrast to what Louis the Fourteenth is embodying as uh, in all the excesses there. Yeah, I think that Fenelon's vision in the end is ultimately distinct from both the kingship of Louis the Fourteenth, as defended by Bossuet, as well as from uh, the um, vision that we see across the Channel in England, coming forward from the Glorious Revolution, 1688, on Lockean principles. Um, the Idea, you mentioned that language of um, uh, the father of the people. This is one of Fenelon's favorite metaphors for um, uh, for uh, monarchical authority, and it captures that image. We've been talking about love, but this idea of paternal love as being foundational is um, something that, of course, later liberals who cringe, and perhaps rightly so, at the idea of paternalism, but this is exactly um, Fenelon sees the uh, obligations of love coming from the monarch as important to uh, encourage. You know, at the same time, He's also got this other metaphor he uses repeatedly throughout his writings to describe monarchical authority. The king is meant not just to be the father of the people, but he also often likes to use this language, Fenelon does, of the the pastor of the people, the idea of the shepherd of the people, somebody who is responsible for care and oversight in such a way that, just like with the father, there is a sense of mutual obligation and reciprocal love between the two entities, that is, people and king. One of the things that Fenelon worried uh, terribly about was the idea that, aside from questions of love, Louis XIV's greatness and grandeur were often bought at the very expense of the well-being of the people. That is, in many ways, this pomp and glory was a zero-sum game. And Fenelon, of course, is witnessing, one has to remember at the time, devastating famines in 1693 and also in the early part of the 18th century, devastating wars, uh, the War of Spanish Succession, among others, which uh, had an incredible toll on the well-being of the people. These sorts of concerns, this war of glory that he saw the king uh, so ambitious for, he thought was coming at the direct expense of the well-being of the least and lowest of the French peasants. And he saw this also on the front lines. He was banished to Cambrai in the north, uh, uh, the archbishopric of Cambrai, after he was forced out of Versailles. And there he saw in his pastoral duties the real suffering of the French peasantry that was faced with living in the conditions of these borderland wars as part of the War of Spanish Succession. So he saw this firsthand, and he really wanted to get the French elite to rethink 
their relationship to the people, not to see it as zero sum, but to see it as an organic unity in which the well-being of one was promoted by and, and, and furthered by the well-being of the other. So that's a fascinating uh, contrast there between these, these alternative versions of the relationship between, say, the leadership or the, 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 the court, uh, the royalty, the, the elites and the people. One is that the people exist for the, <laughs> the uh, enjoyment to, to provide the means of enjoyment for, all, for the people at the top. And the other is that the people exist at the top, at the, top the elites to serve, to be these kinds of guardians and, and servants really of the public good. Um, you talked about – uh, this this idea of a zero sum kind of conception between those things, and that he was critiquing that. This is this is from your introduction. Allow me to quote you, please, because it's uh, I, I really like this this section. I think it brings up an important point. You write as a theorist of commerce, Fenelon recognized the ways in which international trade could promote mutual gains and peaceful bonds between nations. An idea that not only subverted the zero sum mercantile assumptions prevalent in his day but also anticipated many of the defenses of free trade set forth by later Enlightenment thinkers. Um, that's a really important point, I think. Um, you know, as, as, my, as my own work in the history of, of ideas and the history of development, of thinking about economics and morality, um, this idea that, that people can relate positively and both be better off is really an important and, and radical and revolutionary kind of idea. And it's clear that in certain instances, uh, Fenelon believes this to be the case, as opposed to many of his contemporaries, which you point out. Um, you know, the, the traditional vision had been this idea that's what sometimes been called the theory of limited good, which is if anybody is better off, it's because it comes at the expense of someone else necessarily. Uh, it's been identified with his countrymen from a from a, the, the previous century, Michel de Montaigne, uh, as Montaigne's fallacy that you know. Uh, the only kinds of relationships that we can have are these extractive relationships where one person is made better off um, at someone else's expense. Can you say something, some more, ex explicate the, the significance of this insight for Fenelon, both in terms of – you talked about it in terms of his domestic uh, – the relationship in, within a, a, a nation, but even on the international scene? Yeah, no, I think this is really, I think, one of the most important ideas in Fenelon, and it's really the one that drew me to Fenelon. As you alluded in your introduction, most of my work uh, uh, prior to this has been um, on the 18th century, and specifically on the Scottish Enlightenment, and Adam Smith in particular, a name who I know will be familiar to many uh, listeners of um, Acton Line, as one of, the course, the pioneers of, um, of getting beyond zero-sum thinking and thinking about the mutual gains that come from a free commerce among nations. One of the things then that, I mean, after working through these ideas and writing on these ideas in Smith for several decades, I was um, delighted to find in this late 17th century Catholic archbishop one of the first, and I think most powerful articulations, of the anti-mercantilist argument of mutual gains through trade. Fenelon anticipates a number of later arguments that would become very familiar uh, uh, for uh, later theorists of the free market about the mutual benefits of international trade. Um, and in many ways, Fenelon and Adam Smith had the same targets in mind, this mercantilism that confused, um, uh, had confused ideas of wealth and sought to make regulations and restrictions. For, uh, for, of course, for Adam Smith, this was uh, the, the, the merchant monopolies of the mid-18th century in Britain. For Fenelon, 
The mercantile target was the great finance minister Colbert and what he had uh, attempted to arrange uh, for the um, for uh, war uh, financing uh, in France. Um, but all that sort of inside baseball, a little bit specialist. I think the important idea that comes out here is that Fenelon had a truly robust and very humane understanding of the benefits of free and untrammeled commerce. He articulates these in a variety of different places. In some places, one place that they come out is in those tables that you uh, alluded to before. I really love these documents. I, I, I take it that my enthusiasm uh, has come through. But I was just blown away when I was doing the archival work in Saint-Sulpice in Paris, where his papers are, of working through these folio pages and seeing how the way they're even laid out on the page reinforces the main lesson. And under the um, main page on commerce in the manuscript, you see him come to this, and he puts it front and center to make clear what exactly the issue is here. So under the page, I mean, he's now gone through a number of different uh, uh, questions of taxation and finance. But when you come to the um, page on commerce, everything is under the large heading of freedom. And he insists that there should be, the subheading then is, wide commerce of good and abundant commodities in France or of the works made by good workers. The idea that there should be total freedom of commerce for the sake of both the French workers who will benefit from it, as well as consumers both in France and abroad who will also benefit. This, I think, is really, you know, in many ways it seems very familiar to us today, those of us who have studied the free market and live in the age after Smith. But what Fenelon really adds to this, I think, and I used the word humane to describe his vision before, and I'd like to sort of reinforce what he has in mind there. Fenelon's idea of a free commerce of goods, and specifically a free commerce of necessary goods, is drawn out of his larger anthropology of the human good and the healthy human being. Because it should be said that Fenelon was not a friend necessarily of free commerce in all types of goods. There were certain types of luxuries that he thinks could be legitimately restricted, and he did favor in certain ways sumptuary laws. But so far from making that sort of a strike against Fenelon, I think it actually speaks to something really important, which is that for Smith and later theorists of the market, much of the defense of the free market in goods was founded upon certain ideas of luxury consumption. And by the time of the mid-18th century, luxury consumption and free market trade were almost uh, indissociable. These were two things that went together tightly. For Fenelon, the idea isn't that um, what justifies or makes economic growth possible is the idea of gratifying uh, one's greedy impulses. There's really none of that in him. What justifies free markets, freedom of international trade in particular, is the idea of supplying human beings as effectively as possible with the goods that are most necessary, to use his term again, for their existence. And I think that's a really robust idea and defense of freedom of trade, but also one that I think is important for Catholics who may have some reservations towards the luxury-infused or maybe the more greed-is-good sorts of arguments that are often used to defend uh, international trade, freedom of trade. Yeah, another place that uh, 
It's clear there's a there's a um, a characteristic emphasis in Fenelon that's perhaps much different than those defenses or articulations of a market society that come later is in his conception of self-love. So one way of understanding a mutually beneficial exchange is that uh, we can both pursue. You know, you and I um, both have something to get out of this, and we're intent on pursuing our own self-interest, and we as a kind of consequence or a side effect even, make each other better off and, and, and don't harm one another. Um, what would Fenelon say about that kind of, of a conception of self-love? And can you put that in the context of this doctrine of pure love, a document that you do include in the, the edited volume and the conclusion of it? Um, because there does seem to be, at least in some sense, a zero-sum game, you could say, between his conception of pure love and self-love. Yeah, and here I think we have to uh, give at least some brief context sure. just to mention the other great side of Fenelon's um, legacy, which is we've been talking about his politics and that publication in 1699 of Telemachus and how it created uh, or how, how it uh, raised him as a political thinker. But at the very same time in the later 1690s, Fenelon is not just uh, engaged in this remarkable political debate with the court, but he's uh, engaged in a utterly remarkable theological debate, the leading theological debate of his age, the quarrel over pure love. And the quarrel over pure love, uh, 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 the most basic element as it relates to Fenelon, was this emerging question that was coming up through both French moral philosophy as well as French theology about the proper grounds of self-love. And so even outside of the church, there is a robust discussion within the 1660s, 1670s, 1680s of the meaning of self-love. Uh, and anyone that's read their La Rochefoucauld or their, uh, or their Pascal will be intimately familiar with the concerns about self-love of the period. Fenelon was concerned by these two and... What helped factor in his own, or helped it to shape his own conception of this, was the emergence uh, and the really dramatic emergence and revival of a quietistic spirituality in France at the time. And so several different figures, the uh, Spanish thinker Molinos, but then most proximately the famous Madame Guillaume. Madame Guillaume, who was a sort of self-taught spiritualist, uh, had been defending the idea of pure love, free from all self-interest and self-love. And Fenelon took it upon himself, for better or for worse, to become her defender. And in championing her idea and ultimately developing his own, I think one all would say, more the theoretically and theologically robust idea, Fenelon came to uh, become the defender of the legitimacy of a concept of pure love. The upshot of all this in terms of practicalities is that this is what led to Fenelon's falling out of favor with some of the church authorities of the time. I mentioned Bossuet, who was once his mentor and became his chief uh, antagonist in these debates. And it also led uh, some of Fenelon's doctrines to be censured by um, uh, Pope Innocent XII. Also in 1699, uh, in the span of six short weeks, uh, <laughs> Telemachus gets published and he's censured by the Pope. It's really remarkable. I mean, when one thinks about the challenges that must have come from, uh, from having this uh, double fallout with both throne and altar at the same time. 
But what's important for us, and to go to your substantive question here, is that Fenelon, at the same time that he is chastising the self-love of Louis XIV, is also celebrating as a proper, uh, and not just celebrating, but defending, as a proper object of the spiritual being, the achievement of the state of pure love, that is, the transcendence of self-love or amor prof, and the ascendance to a full uh, uh, unification with God that is free of, um, of, this, uh, 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 of being held back by the ego. Um, when you put those things together, and this has been the great scholarly question for those who have worked on Fenelon, especially within the Francophone scholarship, which is voluminous, even as the Anglophone scholarship is still relatively small. The question is how these two things go together. Fenelon, the spiritual defender of pure love, and Fenelon, the political critic of self-love. One thing that has been striking to me in working through this project is to see that there has been a solution that many people have taken up and run with, the idea that Fenelon, as a spiritual defender of pure love and as a political critic of self-love, must also be a political champion of pure love. That is to say, the idea has been suggested by many, by many great scholars, that in fact, Fenelon's normative ideal is to recreate Louis XIV, to purge the monarchy of any form of self-love, and to create genuinely disinterested princes, princes who would be animated by pure love. One of the things I've tried to do in this project is to show that that view, while I can understand where it comes from, and I think that there are some good textual supports for it, doesn't do justice to Fenelon's deeply nuanced understandings, not just of moral psychology, but also of the relationship of politics to spirituality more generally. Where some have argued that Fenelon wants to uh, make politics more pure loving, I think there's a more moderate position that Fenelon occupies, one that's more realist, more moderate, and I think more modern, and one that makes him really a living figure for us today. That is, Fenelon doesn't, I don't think, think that you could ever purge political rulers in the political world of all concern for self-love. But he did think, he was hopeful enough to believe that some of these concerns could be elevated and educated. And specifically, where Louis XIV's self-love led him to desire glory, Fenelon drew a distinction between what he called on the one hand false glory and on the other hand true glory. False glory is the glory of the conqueror, the one whose glory comes at the expense of the well-being of others. True glory is the glory, to go back to what we were talking about before, the glory that comes from having done well for the people from having become their pastor, their father, from having promoted their well-being. And I emphasize that both because it goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of the political vision, but also because this is a really subtle and important point. True glory is somewhere between self-love and pure love. It's not the false glory of total egocentrism, pomp, and grandeur. It's also not the selflessness or total disinterestedness of one who is purged of all concern for the self. 
True glory is a desire for glory, but glory that is desired for having done the right things. That, I would say, is not the doing away with of self-love, but the raising of it and redirecting it to other objects. That seems to me a very moderate idea, and it's also one that's deeply in keeping, I believe, with Fenelon's consummate Augustinianism. Augustine is never far from Fenelon's mind, whether we're talking about spirituality or about politics. But I think Fenelon deeply appreciated Augustine's claim that, in fact, the city of God and the city of man are distinct entities, even as we all know there are significant uh, 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 ways in which they interact. But Fenelon never wanted us to confuse ourselves into thinking that we could be as an idealist might wish it to be, that we could ever create a political world that was wholly free of all forms of concern for the self. That is unlikely to happen in the political world, given the way we are indeed fallen creatures. And to think that we can do that is to go down the road of a very dangerous utopianism. Fenelon, I believe, believed himself. And so instead, I see Fenelon as really working out this remarkably subtle and moderate project of trying to educate self-love, to make it better than it otherwise would be, to use Augustinian terms, to make the political world and the city of man, quote-unquote, less vile, not to make it necessarily disinterested in the way that the residents of pure love. So I really think that Fenelon was a remarkably sophisticated thinker on both the spiritual and political fronts, but also one who was tempered by a real understanding of the differences between those two particular worlds and thought it was really important for us never to make the mistake of conflating them. We, we brought up Adam Smith a couple of times, and, and um, it, it strikes me there's a number of really interesting similarities and, and possibilities for comparison between these two figures. Um, you, you brought up earlier Fenelon's critique of what you might call court morality um, versus, say, common morality or uh, a morality that applies to everyone under a kind of moral rule of law. Uh, and that has some striking parallels with, with Adam Smith's uh, critiques of you know, what it takes to get ahead in the context of a royal court versus a marketplace. Uh, it seems like there's a, an analogous kind of problem with Fenelon interpretation to, with Smith's, the, the Adam Smith problem in terms of how do you see these two um, emphases or ideals cohering in, in, a, in a person's political and moral and social thought. I wonder if you could um, say a little bit about uh, connections you know, the the transition between the age of Fenelon and Adam Smith um, as we conclude this really fascinating discussion. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, about, you know, how these two different parts of my own scholarly project go together. And there really are a bunch of connections. I mean, on the surface of things, they seem to be just completely removed. What in the world does the emerging bourgeois, uh, Protestant, uh, northern Scottish culture of late 18th century Scotland, Smith's world, what does it have to do with the aristocratic, court-centered, uh, monarchical world of, um, uh, of the French Golden Age under Louis XIV? As it turns out, the Scots themselves 
thought it had a fair amount to do with each other. I mean, what I've been fascinating. I've studied Smith for a long time now and have edited one of Smith's works, his work in moral philosophy, the theory of moral sentiments. And I've been terribly struck that just on the surface of things, Smith spends a lot of time quoting uh, authors from 17th century uh, French um, court. We, uh, two of them I mentioned already, even in passing, um, uh, Pascal and uh, La Rochefoucauld. But in fact, the longest quotation that Smith gives, the, the author he quotes the most lines of, of any other author, is the wonderful Massillon, who was also a court preacher of the late 17th century France, and who wrote these wonderful funeral orations. Nobody reads those today, uh, as far as I know, within the Smith world, but Smith read them, and Smith thought them important enough to quote at length. A lot of questions then come up as to why he thought so. But I think, at the, uh, uh, to say just the very least, is that the rapid changes that were happening within 18th century Scotland led a number of them to try to come to the leading Scottish thinkers, to try and come to terms, not just with what is about to come in the future and what sorts of institutions, economic policies, moral virtues will be necessary in this new world, but also to come to terms with the Ancien Regime, the world that was passing, the things that both vitiated it and made it in many ways problematic, but also the things that ennobled it, and especially the virtues that had the potential to ennoble it. And so I think that Smith is really wonderful in trying to call a spade a spade and trying to move us past the worst sorts of um, virtues or uh, the worst sorts of vices associated with the, the old regime. But he also sought to conserve, to save, to preserve and bring forward some of what also was best in the uh, uh, 17th century. And I think that Fenelon plays an important role in that. Fenelon was widely republished in Scotland. Um, and indeed, even in Smith's Glasgow, by some of the best press, by the best press there. So he remains a living figure, Fenelon does, for uh, Smith and for Hume and for the Scottish Enlightenment. And I think by extension, he deserves to remain a living figure for, for us, who are really indeed the, heir, the heirs directly of the Scottish Enlightenment and the liberal tradition. I really think that um, we don't need to label Fenelon a liberal to say that he uh, remains a figure that liberals today very much benefit from engaging. Ryan Patrick Hanley is professor of political science at Boston College and author most recently of The Political Philosophy of Fenelon and editor of Fenelon Moral and Political Writings. Dr. Hanley, thank you so much for joining us on Act in Line. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, well, it's been a great honor and a great pleasure on my end. I really thank you, Jordan, for the, for the great questions. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to spread the word a bit about Fenelon. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, help us bring more attention to the show by sharing it with a friend or leaving a comment wherever you're listening. If you have a question for our team or feedback for the podcast, you can reach us at actonline at actin.org.